This is the 966 episode 116. Hello, Mr. Richard Hello, Wilson. Mr. Lucian Ziegler. <laughs> Merry Christmas to you. This is a, our Christmas edition. I'm going to play some Christmas music, or I did just play some Christmas music on the way in. I got to choose a song, but you just heard some Christmas music on the way in. How are you, sir? I'm good. We can have, yeah, we can have that, you know, you, you pipe that in as we, we do our one big thing in yellow segments. I think just um, the intro portion, if we had Christmas music going in the background at the, the whole time, it would be a little much. <laughs> uh, we've got a good one this, coming up this week. We have uh, Princess Misha'al bin Saud al-Shahlan and Princess Nora bin Turkey al-Saud, co-founders of Eon Strategy and Eon Collective. That's A-E-O-N. Um, Richard, two princesses in one, a huge opportunity and a great discussion. Just organic, just sort of happened. We, 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 Princess Michelle has been on before. She's terrific. And we had asked her to join us after COP28 to give us a rundown and try and help us understand all that happened. And she said, my co-founder should be on. So we got Princess Nora and Princess Michelle, and that made it all that much better. So it was awesome. And it was educational. I, you know, we had talked about, we mentioned it during the, the segment that you and I were both traveling during a lot during COP28. It was very hard to keep up. So this was really informational for for me for sure yeah but definitely for me as well and we sort of timed it perfectly with cop just wrapping up they were definitely still very tired from being there for a few weeks <laughs> yes. um, working almost <laughs> around the clock so really cool eon does produce and curate disseminates fact-based culturally informed knowledge around sustainability they're leaders in the space and especially in saudi arabia and beyond and you know, has active and productive partnerships with Kaus and Capstark. They really are great. So there was a huge privilege to speak with them. A Christmas gift to the 966 listeners and viewers. Absolutely. Um, and we've got a good one for our 116th. It's good to be back sort of getting in this routine a little bit, Richard. Um, yeah. You know, but back in the saddle here for a bit. Jet lag beaten. For a bit. For a bit. Yeah, for a bit. But it uh, <laughs> feels good while it's here. Um, before we get going, please rate, review us wherever you're seeing this. And... Uh, you know, write a comment when on Apple Podcasts, give us a review. And if you can write, hey, really love the show, preferably a positive review. We're not asking you for a positive review, but please, that would be great. <laughs> if, you're if you're feeling kindly, please express it. Yes. And tis the season, of course. I mean, you know, to be generous with your reviews. So thanks for all who have done it already. Um, yeah, we appreciate it. Richard, let's get going. Shall we? What's okay. Well, thing? one big thing this, this week, you know, sometimes as we know, we've talked about sometimes one big things, you know, we're looking for something timely and topical and sometimes they relent and, you know, and they, you can organize them and make them, you know, somewhat uh, understandable pretty quickly. Other times they take you down rabbit holes. We've talked about uh, this one just came all wrapped up in a bow. It's like Christmas. It's like, <laughs> it's like this article came in and said, well, heck, there it is. It's timely. It's interesting. And it's got all the salient facts just laid out really, really there. So I'm just going to read the article. Essentially, it's from Economy Middle East and its investments funds surpass 1 million participants milestone in Q3. So, so, and this speaks actually, it's actually interesting enough that not only did it show up on my, you know, in a bow for me, but it, it fits in with a couple of yellows we have today because we talk about investment. We talk about uh, a new unicorn. Um, and so anyway, this is all uh, of a theme. So uh, in Q3 of the current year, investment funds achieved a new milestone, reaching a record high of 1,209 funds. This is in Saudi. 
This represents a remarkable increase of 35.8% compared to the 890 funds recorded in the same period of the previous year. By the end of Q3 2023, the number of public funds reached 283, number of private funds stood at 926. In comparison, during the year ago period, there were 253 public funds and 637 private funds. That's roughly 300 new private funds over the course of a year. Um, and this is interesting too. According to official data, the number of subscribers in public and private investment funds in Saudi Arabia has surpassed 1 million for the first time. At the end of the third quarter of 2023, there were over 1.126 million subscribers, marking a, a, a significant increase over last year when the number was, was 677,400. So uh, again, an enormous growth in, in, in one year. This is a 66% growth in, over the course of the year. And this will not surprise any either one of us, Lucian. The real estate sector, encompassing both public and private funds, accounted for the largest number of subscribers. I was laughing when I think I might have mentioned last episode. Seems like everyone we talk with is into real estate, <laughs> either you know in their private or they're they've got a fund or you know they're dabbling in it because um, the market is really busting along. So totally. anyway, yeah. And, and uh, more on the, uh, on the real estate, uh, at the end of Q3 2023, the subscribers of real estate investment funds, real estate investment traded fund REITs, accounted for 55% of the total subscribers in public investment funds. The, the, the subscribers of real estate funds represented 71% of the total subscribers in private investment funds. So <laughs> there may be a real estate bubble coming in Saudi. Um, According to the data, there was a 6% rise. This is another interesting thing, and, and we'll talk about this later with um, Tamara. Um, according to the data, there was a 6% rise in the number of listed companies in the main market, Tazi, during the Q3 of, of this year. The total number of listed companies reached two, 230 compared to 217 in the same period last year. Moreover, the number of listed companies on Saudi parallel market Nomu reached 67 in Q3 2023, experienced a substantial increase of 76% compared to the same period of last year. So, um, like I said, this just this is all tied up in a bow. It's really important to Saudi Arabia as it tries to diversify its economy. It's you know it's got a, it's got markets now with a healthy, full, you know, expansive Tasi. It's got the Nomu where you can exit. It's got vehicles for individuals as well as uh, institutions to to invest. All these things are parts of part of a dynamic, healthy ecosystem in terms of investment. Um, so very exciting. A big Q3 2023 in this space for Saudi Arabia. Yeah, very interesting, especially as you noted on the real estate. That's that does seem like <laughs> a very hot number. Very, very hot. But I mean, you also see it. Uh, we both saw it very recently, just the building in every direction shows overall value of, of real estate in, in, in Saudi Arabia. It's not just, you know, all speculation and all, all there's real demand there. But um, this is interesting. We're also going to talk about this in a little bit, uh, talking about Jadwa Investments new private equity fund and what they're doing. Um, just like you said, I mean, don't have too much to add to this because it is a very nice factual piece. Um, but the data here um, are really interesting. I mean, like that is significant growth in total number of funds up 35% of total funds. So there are 1,209 funds now. I mean, the, the year on year growth is really incredible. So yeah, really um, that's quite encouraging. And if you're a policymaker in Saudi Arabia, 
this is what you're looking for as one of the things you're looking for with Vision 2030. Yeah, yeah. And that housing market, you know, there's there's a there's not an equilibrium between supply and demand. You know, the, the stock is not sufficient. That's just why prices keep going up. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I know with Roshan and other things, they're trying to, to to alleviate that demand. But, you know, obviously that's in the space where people are trying to make money. Yeah. And Richard, I believe we have failed thus far to take advantage of this real estate <laughs> boom. And so yeah. we uh, unfortunately are not involved in this huge uh, opportunity going on in Saturday. And <laughs> you had a really good one big thing last week about Vision 2030 projects that were stalled or delayed, but also kind of reprioritized. I mean, the surge in people living in Saudi Arabia's main cities, that's a challenge that is evolving over time. And people that are making decisions on Vision 2030's projects are adjusting accordingly. And there's a huge real estate boom in Saudi Arabia right now, and especially Riyadh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, My one big thing, Richard, this week, I typically stay away from these foreign policy stories as my one big thing, because they, in this region, increasingly are like tiramisu. They just have so many layers to them and you just never can do enough justice to it. And, <laughs> and truly, <laughs> truly, it's just a very difficult situation going on in the region. And so we have attacks in the Red Sea this week um, and last week as well by the Houthis. And just sort of watching from where we sit doing the Sustig review every day, diplomacy and defense cooperation in action in real time. Uh, ships transiting the area have come under attack by drones, ballistic missiles fired from Houthi-controlled areas of Yemen. This week, Danish shipping giant Maersk confirmed on Tuesday that vessels that would otherwise transit the Red Sea and Gulf of Aden would instead take the Cape of Good Hope route around the south of Africa after uh, these attacks have sort of scared them pretty much and, so- and several other shipping companies as well. By the way, in researching this, Richard, a little side, I learned that a common misconception is that the Cape of Good Hope is the southern tip of Africa. It's not. The southernmost point is Cape Agulhas, which is 90 miles to the south. That's a data nugget. The 966 nugget. drops a data nugget. What is it? It's, it's, it's what? It's Cape Agulhas. All right. Agulhas. That's, that's yeah. the most southern, southern, southern point, southernmost point. It, see, this goes into the rabbit holes of things we yeah, do, and you just sometimes you're like, doing. that's too interesting. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> shipping conta- companies under attack. According to the AP, the seriousness of these attacks has led to multiple shipping companies either hold their ships in place or not enter the strait at all until the sur- situation can be addressed. There are about 400 commercial vessels transiting the Southern Red Sea. And, you know, just for context, it's the, roughly the size of Washington to Boston. So it's like the northeastern seaboard length. Secretary Lloyd Austin, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, who visited the region this week, first Israel and then Bahrain, gave some details of this and announced Tuesday in Bahrain that the U.S. and a host of other nations are creating a new force to protect ships transiting the Red Sea. This new force includes some international participation, but not that of Saudi Arabia and the UAE at this time. It should be said that they are far from the only holdouts of participating in the security force to secure the strait. China's disinterest in the Red Sea and policing in general in the region underscores Beijing's reluctance to play anything beyond dealmaker in the region, uh, certainly not referee. Anyway, it goes without saying these attacks uh, are, and seizures are terrible and should stop. They affect global trade uh, and global trade rules. Uh, but I also think that strategically, if you're the Houthis, and I welcome disagreement, Richard, from you and anybody else. But I think if you're the Houthis, this is sort of 
cunning and somewhat shrewd. I mean, you're unable to attack or uh, attack Israel directly or defend Gaza. Um, and it tried. You know, if you're the Houthis, you want to be seen as doing something, gain some favor on the Arab street, maybe improve your reputation. It forces some relocation of U.S. and other assets away from Israel, perhaps, or at least stretches them out versus being in the Med versus the Red Sea. It puts Saudi Arabia in a very interesting position. I'm going to come to this in a second. Um, from what everyone can read online, the kingdom really wants peace in the Arabian Peninsula region. And also it is putting economic prosperity pretty high on the to-do list these days. Pretty strong results so far, as we just discussed with investment funds and the real estate market. Anyway, if you're Saudi, I think, again, this is just projection and I'm not an expert in, in you know, military strategy, undergrad degree in foreign affairs. So take it for what it is, but I think they're doing the right thing here. There's no offense to the Saudi Navy or literally any other Navy in the world, but the USA's Navy is preponderant and can handle this mission alone. I think other allies are strategic and political, not militarily necessary. In my opinion, I mean, if you're at least to start, if you're the US Navy, you're, you don't need Saudi Arabia to participate at this time, in my opinion. Four reasons that Saudi Arabia does not want to do this include, one, being seen as supporting Israel, even though it's weird to say that because these aren't attacks on Israel, um, when Israel's actions in Gaza are infuriating so many, uh, not appetizing or advantageous for Saudi right now, in my opinion. Um, two, they don't need more conflict with the Houthis in Yemen. That was a hard fought piece. We watched that unfold over years, uh, really violent war and finally have it in a good spot. Don't know if they want to risk it. Third, they also want to preserve their new thawing relationship with Iran, who is supporting the Houthis. Fourth, and this is probably my most uh, projecting or, or uh, conjecturous, if that's a word, uh, reason why I think Saudi does not really want to get involved with this is that Saudi Arabia does still want an expanded defense pact with the United States. Biden was considering it. Saudi Arabia can maybe sit this one out fairly and say, hey, we'd like to reserve some space behind the velvet rope for premium members and make you sort of promise to help us a little bit more carrots for a future stronger partnership. I don't know about that. But anyway, there's a lot of reason for Saudi Arabia to not get involved in what's happening in the Red Sea right now. And, you know, I get this question or I have gotten this question a lot over the last couple of days. Why isn't Saudi Arabia joining this coalition? I just see fewer compelling reasons for Saudi Arabia to join this coalition than I do reasons for sitting it out right now. So um, I don't know. I mean, we know that U.S. and Saudi top brass have been speaking, several high-level communications ongoing this week, meetings. Uh, my view is at this stage, if the U.S. really needed Saudi Arabia involved in this, they would make that clear. I don't really see that as coming through Secretary Austin's remarks. Um, and I think this, lastly, it shows a United States that understands the successful Saudi is good, that the U.S. maybe agrees with Saudi Arabia's thinking about not having this thing spread. Saudi's involvement and the UAE's involvement could make this conflict in Israel spread beyond Gaza. So uh, that's for very little upside, in my opinion. So interesting week. I don't normally do these foreign affairs ones uh, as my one big thing, but just tying it into global shipping, the economy, this, this is concerning. So, yeah, I was glad you picked this one this week because like it is, you know, it, it's an important topic and and. Um... I already had mine all wrapped up, so <laughs> yeah. you got that. You watch me wrap this present in real time. <laughs> um, I look at this as uh, everybody, um, almost everybody involved outside of. Uh, we don't even know what Israel's perspective is, but certainly the U.S., certainly Saudi Arabia, 
reportedly Iran, really want to keep a lid on this. And and you see, but this is a in an environment where you have a lot of people who would like to uh, stir things up and with fingers on a trigger, you know, including you know, the Hezbollah, the Houthis are there, you know, paramilitary forces in Iraq are there, Syrian, Iranian elements in Syria are there, Syrian elements in Syria are there. All these groups would love to see it blow up. Um, you know, Biden's been criticized justifiably so for what appears to be a double standard and kind of some hypocrisy because we're now up to 20,000 Gazans killed. And this that's just uh, indescribable. Um, and I think he's getting significant pressure to to adjust U U.S. policy vis-a-vis -vis Israel and, and some of the things they're saying privately come out and make them much more hard-edged publicly. And just to stop this, get a ceasefire. That's what our Arab allies want. But he he has been fairly successful in refraining, restraining Israel on the north with Hezbollah, which is the key element. Houthis, I mean, how do you restrain them? You can't really do anything about them. Um, you know, Saudi Arabia has been a, essentially in a conflict with them for nine years, and the, and the Houthis, you know, Saudi Arabia wants a political settlement. Houthis are fighting it because they think they can get more. So the issue here is, you know, let's let's just cause problems. Let's cause problems. That's what the Houthis, you know, are trying to do here. And obviously, in certain circles, it's it's good. Uh, you know, there's 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 good feelings in terms of ostensibly helping the Gazan. The, you know, Gaza and, and and people in Gaza, if that's what they're trying to do, if it, in fact, hurts Israel. I guess my point is, is, you know, whether Saudi Arabia is part of it or not, um, and they have not, you know, said specifically they're, they're not part of it. They just said, we don't, don't, you know, we don't want to be listed. Um, but also, I don't know that they're needed. Like you said, you mentioned United Kingdom, Bahrain, Canada, France, Italy, Netherlands, Norway, Seychelles, and Spain. And I think EU as a body has come in too. Um, I think they can handle the situation. I do like, one of the things I liked is essentially this is a, you know, they've got the Gerald R. Ford uh, aircraft carrier in, in the region. And that's been there. They've extended the tour. Lloyd Austin was out there extending the tour, I think a third time for a presence, but they're working under the auspices of what I think is that what's called the Combined Task Force 153, which was stood up in April 2022, to manage these kind of security issues in the Red Sea. And it's, a, it's a, it, you know, this, the Combined Task Force CTF 153 is a, is a coalition of like 30, 38 countries. And they can come in and, or, 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 or step out as needed. And uh, they're trying different ways to monitor and control and, and you know, keep temperature down in the region in the in the red sea generally um so it's nice that this is in place and i and i, I think we should give some a shout out to the ctf 153 which is the the, the red sea the ctf 152 is arabian gulf it's been around for much longer um but you know trying to do the same thing and also trying to introduce some some uh autonomous floating uh apparatus that can help track you know it's it, uh, activity the point being is, is this is how you do it. If you're the U.S., you come in, you have a relationship already established. You 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 say to the members, and you say, "Okay, how does this sit for you?" And the Saudis go, "It's not good optics right now. We don't want to be seen, you know, defending Israel. We don't want to be seen provoking Iran. 
we absolutely 100% want, don't want, you know, the Houthis throwing missiles or running drones or boarding craft. Uh, so will you go ahead and take this, but we're going to step out. Next time, we'll see. Yeah, there's is, no coercion, you know. Yeah. It's, yeah. But this is that's that's how it works. Yeah. A partnership. And it, it especially how it works in a partnership you anticipate will be an ongoing partnership. So next time around, we really need the Saudis in. Mm-hmm. And come on, guys, let's step in. This time around, we understand it's not in your best interest and it's something you'd like to avoid. Okay, no problem. Yeah. We'll take this from here. So I like the way it's handled. I don't like, obviously, we don't like the disruption in trade. We don't like the Maersk and MSC and Lloyds of London and everybody is, you know, the costs are going up. Well, nobody likes that. Uh, but it does speak to, you know, what what the U.S. can do that China can't. China's mm-hmm. not stepping in because they can't do anything. Um, you know, this is a U.S. thing, and I like that they're responsive to the the concerns of the UAE and Saudi Arabia. So, I mean, it's, uh, it, it's a good thing. We just have to keep a lid on it. One of the interesting things, you know, little factoids. So Lloyd Austin was out there visiting Gerald R. Ford. Did you see this quote? No, no, no. So since, they, since they've been out there. All right, so, uh, yeah, you know, the Ford is the newest aircraft carrier. It has, um, you know, it, it has 4,000 people on it. It has eight squadrons <laughs> of aircraft. Right <laughs> so so it, while it's been served out there, it's served more than 3.5 million meals. And you will love this. The crew has consumed more than 150,000, 155,000 Red Bulls. <laughs> <laughs> You should look at this thing. This thing is this floating. Is, <laughs> this is Austin's comment. This is sometimes I like being American because we're mm-hmm. just stupid sometimes. I mean, we're the land of the wave and all sorts of in mascots. I mean, we're just idiots. But here he is. He's on this this massive aircraft carrier. And this is a quote. I'm honestly not sure what I find more impressive. That you've racked up more than 50,000, 15,000 flight hours, but that you've consumed more than 155 thousand red bulls unquote that's our that's our secretary of defense on the Gerald R. Ford. that is such a significant amount of red bulls that is actually i mean we're talking big numbers all across the board here so because um yeah i mean oh, you know when when just stepping with that first of all that's hilarious and i'm going to come back to that in a second but when we talked about this earlier it's like you know i mean this the cost of the gerald r ford was roughly seven over 17 over 16 billion dollars and had five of that was r d just to make it and so it's just like you know no one else has that no disrespect but like hey like you know anyway that how many red bulls richard did you say 155,000? 155,000. <laughs> so i don't know that's, that's so probably yeah, that's probably all that that's more than you know the red bulls consumed on all the sec campuses during exam week <laughs> you know it's a yeah. lot of that's a lot of red bulls for one ship and you know i personally especially in a peer-to-peer compact i'm not sure how how aircraft carriers would survive but we'll see but in this situation they seem to be just right for the job um but uh yeah we yeah yeah there are some things we do well one of them is consuming red bull and and overspending one could argue on our military to the point where (laughs) no one else really needs a navy because we have this floating city that is powered by red bull by the way it makes me think of uh richard our old friend patrick ryan is a navy guy he made he might joke that it used to be 155,000 beers but things have gotten serious um but yeah i mean that's uh it is i just hope this doesn't get too out of control. And I hope that there are 
you know, fair proportional responses and, and we can reopen the shipping lane again. And, and I also hope for a ceasefire in, in uh, Gaza. So, well, of course, yes. And it was, uh, by the way, a shout out to um, Patrick Ryan, because uh, Army Navy game, I think I might have told you, my oldest son, who was formerly with the 3rd Infantry Division, the Army wore uh, Rock of the Marne 3rd Infantry Division shout out uniforms. The Navy wore these slick, dark, dark blue um, silent service shout out to submarinos. And so Patrick Ryan was, I, I sent a note to Pat and said, Hey, these look really sharp. He said, I can't pay attention. There's a tornado coming. Said, this <laughs> there, was Nashville. There was. Yeah. He wasn't. That's right. I forgot so, about that. So anyway, but shout out to our friend, Patrick Ryan, uh, a wonderful person. And, uh, you know, thank you for your service. Yep, indeed, wonderful person. Uh, thank you for his service. And he, uh, a lot of people that know both of us, Richard, ask about him from time to time. So it's kind of good to mention his name on this podcast. By the 100%. way, uh, do you do you know who is credited as the first person to navigate around the Cape of Good Hope? I don't. It's if you had gotten Magellan? this, Richard, it's Bartolomeu Diaz in fourteen ninety something. He had Portuguese dude did it. Ah. Uh. Anyway. He was, that was my fourth guess. <laughs> I didn't mean to put you on the spot. That is, I was no, like, no, I've, no, no. I've maybe heard of that guy, you know? I was like, I'm always giving you a quiz, but I had nothing on that. <laughs> but we can't let that get out of control, by the way, or we'll reveal how little we actually know. Or yeah, let's exactly. at least cheat a little bit and give each other some teasers. Anyway, um, good one big things. Uh, mood is definitely a little bit elevated here in our last episode before Christmas. Um, and on that note, we are pleased now to speak with um, Princess Michelle bin Saud al-Shahlan and Princess Nora bin Turki al-Saud, uh, both co-founders of Eon Strategy and Eon Collective. Uh, this is such a cool conversation. First rate. We're lucky to have had it. I hope you guys enjoy. Mm -hmm. We are pleased to welcome back onto the 966, Princess Michelle bin Saud al-Shahlan, and welcoming onto the 966 for the first time, hopefully of many, Princess Nora bin Turki al-Saud, founding partner of Eon Strategy and co-founder of Eon Collective. You're both co-founders of Eon Strategy and co uh, Eon Collective. Welcome back, Princess Michelle, and welcome on, Princess Nora. Nice to see you both. Good to see you guys. Uh, I know, Richard, you were in our offices a few how long was it? Honestly, it's probably three weeks now. So it seems like it, it seems like ages. Doesn't it feels it? like an eternity. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, well, and, next time, Lucian, you can make your way over to the office. Inshallah. <laughs> well, well, I love. Well, I I had a great drink while I was there. I was noticing you have your afternoon energy smoothie, which is, is great. <laughs> but and and we we had an opportunity before we did the official intro to talk a little bit about how you two connected, and so we'll we'll splice that in. Uh, before we move on to sort of the, the heart of in the COP28, can you talk a little bit about your headquarters? Because we were complimenting on your website. We just discovered that you two did the website. The website is, you know, just astoundingly good. It's awesome. Yeah. Your your headquarters, you both designed. And and it's it's quite a departure. It's it's a really a lovely space with great light. Anyway, can you talk a little bit about that? And also your your tree garden, which or, or what, I'm not sure what the proper term it's is. It's the tree library, tree yeah. Tree yeah, library. The... Just briefly on your your space that you 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 developed and built. Yeah, I, I think I think to both Nora and I when we first started, we knew that the topics that we were handling were so heavy and sometimes so complex that we wanted to create a space. Uh, that almost served as a haven where you wanted to go to every day and 
sort of designed to your temperament and um, sort of feel like a second home. You know, the bulk of what we get from statistics is that people spend most of their time in their offices, but what we're seeing is really dehumanized cubes uh, that are mostly painted white. Uh, actually, to, to point to the green, the green itself took some time of Nur and I sitting in the middle of the half-built offices, mixing colors to just get it to the exact shade yeah. that we wanted uh, to have this space with. So if it is telling of anything that we're very much meticulous on the detail, we want to make sure that we're creating the right kind of space mm -hmm. for like-minded individuals uh, to crowd in, uh, because we're, I guess, painfully aware of the size of the task at hand and responsibility that we decided to undertake in day one which was sustainable development, right? And before you sustain, you need to be doing a lot of repair <laughs> to get it to a space that was safe enough for us to continue to sustain. So let's so say the heaviness of the topic that we have at hand that uh, almost forced us to do um, all of these additional layers of creating the space. And mm -hmm. it definitely helps when you have a, a, an, an, a, you know, a partner that's uh, an amateur designer slash architect uh, that gets to sketch up all of the ideas that you're discussing into paper and I'll put the idea forth. I don't know what was it. No, I think it's very well. Um, I think just like any startup, we started in a living room. We, we came back and we started, you know, developing our ideas, working on smaller projects here and there, but it was all done from our living room until we hired um, employee number one, who is very much part superstar. of the development and a superstar. And we're so happy. We're so lucky to have her. Um, and she, she should have she should have a shout out, shouldn't he? This is Miad. Oh, Miad is the best. Is the best. Yeah, yeah. So we shout <laughs> out to Miad. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, she was employee number one. She's literally the backbone of this entire institution, um, and we thank her for all her hard work and her commitment, and you know, just her friendship. Um, and she used to come in and out, join us, joining us in this living room, just sketching, ideating, planning, um, until we decided that we need to have, you know, something more presentable to meet people, right? And to have meetings and all of that. So we went around looking for office spaces all over the city and we couldn't find anything. Every office space after the other was just depressing and just, I don't know, it just ripped all of the enthusiasm, all of the the, the the excitement out of what we had in mind and so we just decided you know what we've been in this living room for quite a while might as well just stick for another few months and build something there was an empty plot of land um that uh we were able to to use and was given to us and we were like okay you know what let's just build something that's inviting that's spacious that brings in light that brings in light that's uh in conducive to creativity and let's just do it. So we started working on it. And yeah. it's a work in progress. We constantly expand, work, improve. <laughs> it's a living organism in, on its own. Uh, well, you know, it, 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 especially with the tree library. Can you briefly tell us about the tree library, which is a beautiful space and that you're going to try and replicate throughout various spots in the kingdom, correct? Absolutely. In the kingdom and in the world, you know, because of, the, again, the density of the topics that we're trying to handle. Um, it required a bit of airtime for people to sit and converse around some difficult conversations at the stage with which we were ideating around this issue. Uh, we were discussing some topics uh, that were quite controversial at the time, like net zero or carbon markets or things that, uh, you know, back in 2019, I know it's a completely different world today, but it might seem really controversial to discuss uh, in Saudi. Uh, so we wanted to create a safe space 
that allowed people to have these conversations. Uh, maybe a few hours for another shout out. We had a brilliant friend uh, and a colleague uh, uh, and architect, uh, and Adia architect. Wood, an actual architect, if not Nura's. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we're like we're like we're we're not actually podcasters. Either. Yeah, this, we, we know how this works. <laughs> so, so it's a group of posers. Uh, <laughs> message to people, but yeah, Alia was brilliant, and we were like, Alia, we need to have a home uh, that uh, sort of reproduce the feeling at its purest of safety that I missed at the time uh, that we were coming up with these ideas of losing my grandmother. Um, you know, having a a garden and what it meant in a place like Riyadh um, used to always mean something that's, that was productive, that was intimate, that allowed people to gather. Uh, and we saw and witnessed over our own lifetime how that is morphed into something that it, it should have never become, a, a space where it, it was a representation of people's egos, the types of flowers, the most... Um, uh, uh, you know, uh, a la mode tree that you can import from God knows where and with it, maybe the unintended uh, implications. So we wanted to create a space uh, that was true to that notion of an open air medjlis uh, where you can air out a lot of these difficult conversations and surround people with this concept of a paradise garden, you know, going into a place that brings on your ego to the, you know, dial it up. To close to zero, uh, but also raise up your innovation and your openness and receptiveness to ideas and to the other, and be surrounded by, at its simplest form, a fruit that you can grab and just sit and roll up your sleeves and start discussing some of these more difficult conversations and have that be sort of the seedling through which you can have a much greater impact uh, on the world around you. Um, so that was essentially the inception behind it. And obviously we saw that this type of interaction was very much needed, especially post-COVID, that there was a real wish and a desire to connect in real life, other than having a global mesh uh, that's a bit more digital. And that's what we're trying to create right now with the Tree Library program. Well, it's a beautiful space. And I think it has every indi indigenous tree and in, in Saudi included in it. Um, and I also- 89, if I'm not mistaken, and yeah. growing. So um, let's dive into COP28. Which from which you you recently returned. I mean, this was the largest UN climate summit ever. This is in Dubai, eighty five thousand delegates, oh, one hundred fifty four heads of state. It, it must have been a bit of a zoo, um, but it must have been awfully impressive as well. Can you talk a little bit about being there, and then let's just flow on into um, some of the you know over one hundred seventy declarations came out of this declarations, pledges, commitments. Some of them more meaningful than others, some of them more uh, achievable than others. But if you can talk about the experience and then your assessment of the big things and the, the really notable things that you want to put a pin in and say, pay attention to this. If, if I could maybe set the stage a little bit of uh, around the, the COP itself. To us, these are like Super Bowls, yeah. Um, it's like the end of year culmination of a year's work and for you to get a sense of what have we done, what have we have achieved, and how can we use this as a springboard for future action. So we were looking at this more in terms of a typical COP. Maybe there were a lot of promises that were being baked into it, but I have to say, even from our perspective and in our last conversation, we were thinking that there might be some massive achievements that could be done, but maybe not necessarily to the degree that we were hoping to see. And I'm really happy to say that maybe we'll get back to it a bit later, that it defied all of our expectations. But at its core, it was becoming what COPs need to be from this point moving forward. Uh, in the beginning, 
they were very tight negotiations between different countries and different countries' representatives to get all of the countries around the world to agree on one set of rules, which culminated in what became the Paris Agreement, right? So it was, it was essentially just saying that was our first call, by the way. Uh, so let's sit on a table and let's all agree that this would be our pathway and our rule book to get us from point A to point B, A being a very unsafe operating space for humanity, to B, a safer, arguably, space for operation, which was around the targets of the 1.5 to 2 degrees C. What has happened uh, between COP21 and Paris and between now was that it was naturally starting to close up a lot of the areas of negotiations, a lot of the issues around carbon markets, a lot of the issues around, let's say, the rules of the game, let's say. And now that we have a pretty solid rule book, uh, it's only natural to start crowding even more people in to start thinking about the rollout or the execution or the solution. So it was not in my opinion, an exercise of fanfare. It was it was almost like what a natural evolution of a COP needed to be to allow us to achieve the intended goals and targets of the Paris Agreement, which essentially said we need all of the players on the table. We need a replication of what the, an actual ecosystem looks like, not just for negotiators, you know, the business sector, the private sector, NGOs, civil society, youth, everyone that has a role to play within this bigger arena. Um, to get them going on that translation piece and to get the momentum going on pieces around finance, on what has worked and what hasn't, on maybe having even more way of influencing what those policies are looking like, to be more in step with reality uh, and the needs that that reality is dictating. Maybe just to to say why this COP was important, and we touched on this earlier about the, the global stock take and what the global stock take is. Chad, you mentioned Paris and how significant Paris was in terms of driving climate action because it crowded it in people from different sectors within society and not only the official UNFCCC track or negotiation track. And essentially, the reason why this COP was very important because it looked at what happened since 2015 to today and all the commitments and promises and where we are today, where we stand and what's, what is necessary to 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 do from now and not just agree on on paper, but actual actions that we need to take today in order to stay below two degrees um, by um, end of the century. And a big aspect um, around this was on uh, managing emissions by 2050 and reaching net zero targets globally by 2050. And this was a point of contention and since the get-go. Um, one thing that the president presidency has done this year was it literally was very transparent and it opened up the options in the, the, the text for all um, 197, arguably maybe up to 200 uh, countries to come in with their texts and to come in with their demands and their aspirations and what they wanted to see in this text and what they wanted to see come out of uh, the agreement. So it was open for people to come in with all of, you know, whether you agree or don't, you're clearly going to see a lot of, of countries disagreeing about topics. But I think the most contentious was on the phase out and phase down of fossil fuels. And there were different, the way countries are organized, they're organized in blocks uh, for them to have more of a, of, a, of a presence and a stronger voice. So you have um, the high coalition uh, or how a high ambition coalition that was really pushing for this phase out uh, of fossil fuels. And then you had the EU, for example, talking about a phase down and their conversations kind of uh, evolved over the year. Other countries talking about, no, we want to talk, we want to insert the, the concept or text around unabated fossil fuels, so yeah. using car carbon capture technologies for that. But essentially it all revolved around the energy mix and the role of fossil fuels in the global energy mix and its contribution to climate change. 
So that I think was the most important um, yeah. uh, point of conversation. I, I think yeah. as well going into it, what the UAE was very sober in recognitions that you needed e very clear wins mm -hmm. uh, that helped bridge that crisis of trust that was happening between different countries. And, um, you know, going into it, maybe what we're hearing in terms of the noise externally was still reflecting into the positions of different negotiators, um, especially around some of the aspects of the loss and damage fund that was announced during COP27 that had a bit of a contention around its structure. Where does it get housed? Is, is it going to be under the yeah. World Bank, et cetera? So what the, the UAE was able to achieve in the first hours, actually, was to say, yeah. Case closed, you know, congratulations, let's all celebrate this win that could have been a stickler that could have hindered a lot of other wins somewhere down the line. And then followed it up with um, relatively easy, uh, arguably, agreements that could have all of the different players on the same page, uh, mm -hmm. such as tripling of renewables. So instead of focusing on the denser, uh, contentious issues around phasing out, phasing down, you know, things yep. that are more tied to 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 creating two different camps. Let's all agree on what we all need to do, right? Yeah. So tripling of renewables, everyone wants more renewables. This is something easy to agree on. Uh, uh, doubling of energy efficiency, absolutely. Let's have more of that. Mm -hmm. um, some of the agreements as well that were emerging on some of the areas, let's say, uh, that were very little or seldom touched in the past uh, under a climate umbrella. So uh, some of the agreements around agriculture, for example, it just allowed for a much wider lens uh, mm -hmm. And a bigger uh, momentum-building exercise that allowed to people uh, for countries to say these are the areas that we agree on, these are the commitments that we're making in these spaces, and let's have a positive momentum and and trajectory going into the second week, which tends to be the mm -hmm. the stickier uh, negotiation side uh, uh, of of the COP. Uh, yeah, I think a lot of the issues that could have been resolved early on were kind of discussed in the first week or even first days. Yeah. But we did see that that um, brought people together and it kind of pushed them in the right direction in terms of everyone, on, even if there were areas where there were disagreement, everyone wanted to find a solution. Yeah. And I think the ev events of the first couple of days really put people on that pathway yeah. and brought them together as opposed to you know push them apart and yeah. i think that was brilliant by the by the president i agree as as a non-annex one country under the um under the unf triple c which is a developing country um the uae was not supposed to put any and it's not required to put any money in the loss and damage fund because it's categorized as a non-annex one country um but it did it did because out of goodwill because it has the funding it has the capacity and it wanted to encourage and crowd in um, funding there. Are we at the level that is required? Nowhere near. It's about, I think it reached somewhere just north of 700 million. And what's really needed for this fund is more than trillions, like hundreds of trillions. But it's a good step. Let me jump in here because I think that's interesting. You know, because Princess Michelle, you, you and I, we talked about your concerns going into it about how it was being portrayed in the media and, and, and concerns that it was sort of being set up to fail. So this is very interesting. You you point to two things. One, you felt like all more constituencies were represented, had a voice. Two, I think that was interesting terms. You 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 said very clear wins early on, and uh, maintaining momentum. So it's interesting. So is it, you know, how you manage a group like this? And and it's you know. Can I add of, a third one to that, Richard? Absolutely. This is oh, honestly this is the projection of soft uh, diplomacy in a way. It's food. You know, when, when, <laughs> when, when people have good food, good coffee, um, 
comfortable spaces, gardens, spaces to breathe, art, music. These are tangential things that usually are in the peripheries of cops or sometimes non-existent. Mm -hmm. um, so when people are well-fed, rested, comfortable, listening to good things, breathing good air, it, it it's conducive to create this sense of, oh, we are one tribe and they're to solve for it. By the way, by the way, just to add to that, if you speak to anyone who works on getting the Paris Agreement to work from the presidency, what, obviously they did a lot of shuttle, shuttle diplomacy, they did a lot of work, but one big aspect of the event itself was really focusing on the availability of food and coffee and good food and coffee. And this was conducive to the success because people are working overnight. It's a secret start with good food. So it, it might sound as something secondary. And, and because it's secondary, people don't often think about it, but it does play a big role in having people, you know, comfortable. Well, that's a, that's a human exercise. But apropos to that is, is this was held and while we were over there, Lucia and I were laughing because we do a daily news review and we could, couldn't keep up because so much was happening because the announcement that Saudi Arabia had won the 2030 Expo, which was huge. The reason I say this is because wasn't this event, the COP20 event held at the Expo 2020 site that, you know, the Emirates and Dubai, you know, had so successfully executed uh, just in 2022. And so it was on that site, correct? Absolutely. I mean, arguably that was uh, to some in early days to, to its detriment, just so large. Um, different countries were housed in spaces that were akin to meeting blocks. It just made it very difficult because those that are used to cops, they're used to all of the country's pavilions happening under one roof. So walk down, you'd get a sense of, uh, you know, this conversation is happening there. This event is happening there. Let me just walk over. Uh, but given the f massive space of Expo, it made it a lot more difficult. But honestly, I saw an adjustment period where in the first few days, well, a, a good co-benefit is our, my stamina is up, is really up there at this stage. I have to keep it up now. Your cardio is awesome right now. Yeah, absolutely. Because we had to run from one space to the other. But uh, I don't know if that was equally done by design or uh, let's say as, as a positive co-benefit. Because sometimes when you aggregate like-minded thinkers too closely to one another, it could uh, end up creating... Uh, chokeholds or or you know uh, spaces that would make some of uh, the aspects of the conversation a little bit more difficult. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think I think probably there are a lot of PhD students that are now writing up papers around the design of COP and uh, how that has had effects uh, on the outcomes. Uh, but uh, there's definitely something to to draw uh, from just the, having a wide space for people to breathe and and just enjoy. And there's definitely in addition to a lot of uh, the other cops, let's say a leg up, uh, the infrastructure that was already out there because of Expo 2012. Yeah, fascinating. So let's start. So, you know, it looks like a great first week. And certainly from the announcement coming out, very rolling. And But as it turned out, COP28 had to be extended a day to reach an agreement. Can you tell mm -hmm. us essentially about the second week, which is in a lot of that, I guess we're talking about the global stock take. And yeah, I think that's that's where you lose uh, the, the parallel of... Uh, of sports, right? When when I'm talking about a Super Bowl, I've never heard of one that extends by a few days. But when you when 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 you choose to go into this profession, you have to know going overboard by 24 hours is akin to normal. It's not that big deal. We're just happy and glad that it, it, it didn't stretch beyond a, a three day stretch stretch hold. Um, and honestly, up to the last 
two days or maybe a day and a half, it was seemingly heading into a, a roadblock that, that no one um, thought that they might find some way out of. And maybe uh, we can dig in a bit deeper around some of the political diplomas, diplomatic magic that uh, some of the ministers were weaving uh, in the backdrop to allow us to reach uh, what, what what became the UAE consensus? In the, in yeah, the please give give us that context because it you know it's the the UAE consensus is considered you know a monument you know a momentous historical agreement. Uh, and what is the UAE consensus? And how, tell us a little bit how it was achieved. Um, so I, I think Nora reflected a little bit on this a bit earlier um, around around the global stock take and yeah. Uh, what was deemed even prior to going into COP, the moment that the UAE was announced as spearheading the presidency at the wake of COP27 is that any language that does not clearly delineate a phase out or at minimum a phase down of fossil fuels will be seen as a massive failure. Um, I think uh, the massive diplomatic breakthrough came when a decision was made to focus less on the sources and focus more on the trajectory. So instead of thinking of uh, phasing down or phasing out uh, of fossil fuels, more of a question of what are you really trying to achieve at the end of the day? And, and instead of equally delineating emissions, you know, any words that, that were rife with uh, uh, diplomatic sticky points were removed off of the table and more of a focus and an emphasis was made around what's the intentionality and what are we really trying to achieve? Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, what are we really trying to achieve with the global stock take is to ensure that we keep 1.5 alive, is to ensure that we're aligning a lot of these goals and trajectories with scientific goal and target and, and based on science, let's say, uh, uh, in terms of its trajectory uh, to developing countries is to assure uh, some kind of an open-ended menu uh, that allowed countries to have a differentiated pathway to reach these intended goals and targets. Um, in some of the early texts, uh, there was some mention around uh, uh, trying to rebalance the issues of the demand for oil and gas uh, and the supply of oil and gas. That was language that we saw uh, removed uh, at the end of it. Uh, I think the key outcome to me, um, was a there was a document that no one was happy with <laughs> in in its early week uh, that everyone had to make a little bit of sacrifices to assure that what we're agreeing on uh, is much stronger than what we're disagreeing on, and that we could all contribute or uh, minimize our requirements to a certain threshold to allow for uh, uh, an agreement to emerge. Yeah, I think. I think it's just the nature of negotiations, right? Everyone gets something, but no one gets everything, simply put, right? And I think the, so just maybe to take a couple of steps backwards, the uh, UAE consensus was specifically on the global stock take and the agreement about the, on the global stock take, which is one agenda item of many. Um, there are multiple items, as you probably know, but there's, you know, uh, agendas on adaptation, finance, market mechanisms, all of these different components uh, that fall under either the Paris Agreement or the meeting of the parties to the Kyoto Protocol. So there are different agenda items, but again, because based on what I explained earlier, the biggest um, item was the global stock take because it's, you know, the culmination of what happened until 
20 from 2015 until today and that's why it was a big issue and the main um uh agenda item for this cop and the failure of that means ultimately you know it would be seen as a failure of cop even though there could be a lot of other progress on other items but this was the big ticket issue and that's why there was a lot of focus on that but there were of course other um, agenda items uh, that were discussed and that was improved or there was progress on many of them i i think i think uh, an important uh phrase that I, I, I believe that I forgot to mention, so I'll just jump back into it. Um, an important framing that I thought was really successful is uh, instead of saying phase out or phase down, let's agree on a different language, which was transition away from, right? So if you're talking about phasing something down, you're talking about a supply of something within a system, which could create some kind of, uh, you know, different tribes uh, retreating to the areas they were comfortable with or uncomfortable with for that matter and, and giving very little room to negotiate. But when you're talking about transition away from, uh, there are some aspects of transitioning away from fossil fuels that's already happening today. It's happening organically. There are differentiated sets of endowments for different countries that may choose to continue to provide, let's say, the last barrel of oil in certain spaces because of their um, the cost that it would uh, uh, cost them to produce that barrel of oil or the associated emissions at the wellhead that can give them a differentiated advantage, let's say, that allowed them to continue to play as long as, again, we're agreeing on the end goal. Um, do we need uh, fossil fuels and energy systems overall to produce electricity? I think the answer universally is no. Um, do we need fossil fuels to do some of the more difficult things up to a certain extent? The answer almost universally is yes, primarily on some of what's called the hard to abate sector. And I think when you're giving a certain directionality, but you're also saying that within that, we're giving equal treatment to uh, the way with which we're assessing that pathway, we're giving equal treatment to having a broad opening up of the items within the menu. Um, so if you noticed in the global stock takes text, there was a clear mention of renewables, of energy efficiency, of clean hydrogen, as opposed to solely a focus on green, which again, it's the bracket uh, on CCUS um, uh, that a lot of countries are emphasizing quite heavily. And why was it so important to mention these specific areas is to highlight and to send a clear signal to the market that these are areas that we are intending to uh, uh, focus on quite heavily. At the same time, when you're saying transition away from fossil fuels, this is sending two differentiated signals to two differentiated audiences. So if you're in countries that are not oil producing, you're sending a signal that to us, we're gonna be focusing quite heavily on renewables. We're gonna fo be focusing on uh, very uh, clear areas of independence, of reliance on any external countries. And that again, falls within their global narrative. So countries like Europe, um, countries like uh, some of the uh, blocks that are more uh, emphasizing on the high coalition or the high ambitions like low-lying countries and islands might be focused quite heavily on that type of term. But if you're thinking about the Middle East uh, countries, primarily the GCC, countries like Saudi Arabia and the UAE, this sending a differentiated signal to say, you know, concepts that are uh, akin to the circular carbon economy are, are no longer a nice to have or are no longer meant to be vehicles to help us achieve net zero by 2060. The whole world is now committed to net zero by 2050. And there are clear uh, 
closing window of opportunity, let's say, for you to figure out a way of differentiating your product from a carbon management perspective compared to the rest of the world. So if you're aiming to continue to provide that barrel or if you're aiming to continue to provide that product to the market, you have to have a clear distinction in, in how you're approaching the, the emissions associated with your uh, product. So uh, it just allowed for different softer landing zones for different countries and allowed for a language that was both stringent, that was both science-based, but equally open to the differentiated sets of endowments that countries had going into this process. I mean, some are saying it just revived the whole spirit of the Paris Agreement, which is, you know, everyone has a role to play, basically. Well, it does. And but also, it, it, you know, it, it it seems, you know, since the 2015 COP21 Paris Agreement, each successive, each successive COP has tried to move closer to more ironclad commitments. You know, let's get a little more specific and, you know, really ironclad commitments. And there was there's criticism of this in some sense that is it still too open-ended or what's your takeaway? Or did you feel like the, 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 there was really significant movement in people, right? These are specific commitments and that and that nations are going to be pursuing, trying to fulfill these commitments. They, they would have to, uh, because I think the differentiation is that when you're saying ironclad, do you mean prescriptive in what that pathway looked like? Or do you mean ironclad in terms of the commitments? If it is ironclad, in my opinion, um, then the focus would have been diverted to emissions. The focus would have been in ensuring that we're not falling into mistakes in the future when it might be a little bit too late to say, go down one pathway or another. I mean, we're, I was chatting with uh, Noura a, a bit earlier around, without naming names, um, the issue of adaptation, for example, and how we were told this uh, false narrative of do not mention adaptation, focus, focus, focus on mitigation, because the more that you focus on adaptation, you're steering people away from mitigation. That's really important. And the reality of the matter is now you're having people at some of these frontline hit areas, be it being hit by hurricanes, sea level rise, that have no means of achieving their, their intended mm -hmm. goals and targets. No, absolutely. I think especially when it comes to adaptation, I think it was always seen as a non-economically viable approach and you had to do it just for the sake of adapting. But I think the conversation has changed and there's a lot more highlighting the benefits of adapting, not to mention the importance of saving lives, of course. But again, there's a lot more incentives for the private sector uh, to invest in adaptation methodologies or adaptation measures as opposed to only mitigation. To give you an example, if you're looking at farmers and you want to enhance their crops resilient, investing in crop heat resilient and crop is um, you can there are an there's an economic benefit for investing in that as opposed to not and that's considered uh, climate adaptation finance so that's just one example but yeah you know as with everything it seems you know the loss and damage agreement the adaptation it, the, the, you know it comes down in many ways to money mm -hmm. and, yep. and how much was committed uh, in terms of the loss and damage we I know we have that hundred billion dollar mark um, but also the adaptation needs funding. Yep. And is, is, it, is it your sense that the funding is going to be forthcoming and adequate? So this is the thing, even with some of the commitments on triple, tripling renewables and energy efficiency that was under the global stock take agenda, 
none of these can be operationalized unless you have the financing to support it, whether it's on the adaptation or mitigation. And there's still a huge gap when it comes to the adaptation uh, component and also the loss and damage. The loss and damage, again, the fund currently receives 700 million, and I think it requires billion. Same thing for adaptation finance. There was a, there was a, I think it was about 20, 20 billion or something last year in, or in Glasgow, and there was a call to double that. But there, the the current gap in adaptation finance ranges between 190 something billion to 370 billion. That's a huge gap. And again, the reason why this range is, varies is because it depends on what constitutes as, as adaptation finance and whatnot. But still, 194 or five is still significant yeah. in terms of a, a billion in terms of a gap. Yeah, so there's a lot. And I think one of the you know the 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 agreement on the global stock take I think was successful. But without the finances mm -hmm. require that are that are required, it's very hard to move forward. And this is some of the concerns that many of the low-lying islands, the IOSIS group, had because it doesn't matter what goals you have on paper if you don't have the mechanisms that will allow for these goals to happen on the ground. Then you're stuck in that same loop and system where you're constantly calling year after year for more finances, and nothing is happening, or you're just getting peanuts compared to the the amount that you need. Now, this might sound very gloomy, but I think there is one must acknowledge the progress and the conversations happening around reinventing the, the international financial system, uh, restructuring debt finance and all of that in order to um, uh, support um, the climate targets in a way that is fitting to today's environment and the amount of finances that are required. Yeah, I think that's what was sent as a very clear signal and honestly maybe arguably some of the failures if you notice the agenda items that were never pushed across the finish line mm -hmm. a lot of them in spite of the loss and damage fund being you know agreed upon very early in the process a lot of the funding and financing if you're comparing it to what's really needed it's peanuts um you know uh, Vaclav Shmil reminded us a while ago uh, you know the differentiation between actually getting to the moon and back and between where we're at with climate and the reason why we're able to do that all the way back in the 60s and, and not being able to get our, our heads remotely around the climate crisis is that what that required was billions. And what we're talking about right now is trillions and trillions maybe in some ways with very little to be seen from a tangible, uh, bankable impact, mm -hmm. uh, uh, let alone the complexities of the ge shifting geopolitical map uh, uh, with this task at hand. Um, so what it's really sent us is a very clear signal that that required further attention, um, not to mention Article 6, some of the issues around the carbon markets that were not finalized, but also that there needs to be a sober uh, reassessment of what needs to happen within our general financial architecture to allow for this crowding in consistent crowding in of funding to the areas that are that needed the most and in a way that's consistent with our goals and targets you know uh, the global stock take uh, as i was saying on the sidelines of this is sending a very clear signal to what each country must do but it's not sending a very clear signal to what the financial ecosystem must do um, and and you know if we're looking at all of the ndcs globally there's very little to see a financial commitments uh that are being committed to on paper uh, to what, what those, those countries need to be on the receiving end of. Um, it, that was one of the more painful moments to both Noor and I, uh, witnessing that last celebratory moment, uh, you know, to see the raising of the hand of our colleague uh, from Samoa, knowing that she had to have the very difficult task of going back to her people uh, 
not having very clear outcomes that were generated. Um, so that that's why a massive em emphasis on adaptation and on finance will go into uh, COP uh, uh, next year, COP29, uh, mm -hmm. and in the lead up to COP30 in Brazil. And uh, the Brazilians were uh, uh, taking a leadership position saying that we need a troika between the UAE, Azerbaijan, and uh, that will be hosting COP next year and Brazil to help shepherd that issue of adaptation among many other issues uh, that are left hanging. Um, because, I mean, that's what we really need to get down to. It's all nice to have a cool document that everyone agrees on, but we need to do more of walking the talk um, to enable us to get to where we need to go. And for our listeners, can you tell us what NDC stands for? Sure. So that's nationally determined contributions. The way that the Paris Agreement magic wand or secret sauce was, is to say, instead of how Kyoto functioned, which was the previous agreement that sort of split the globe into global north versus global south, what Paris was really successful in doing is to say, each country can determine what its contribution to this goal and target is. And then with this ratchet mechanism, this five-year cyclical ratchet mechanism, be able to submit more ambitious uh, goals and targets uh, at these uh, periods of time to help us achieve those goals. So it's almost like you're building up confidence by doing, as opposed to uh, just making really vague commitments uh, that you can renege from somewhere down the line. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's it been working. called the intended INDC, so Intended Nationally Determined Contribution Pre-Paris Agreement. So when everyone agreed, it moved into, and the, the term uh, changed, internationally determined contributions, which every few years, countries and uh, countries update their NDCs. You probably heard about this, that countries update their NDCs or X amount right. of countries updated their NDCs and whatnot. The kingdom did update its NDC in 2022, was it? With the first uh, Saudi Green Initiative, actually, 21. Oh, and we announced our net zero targets, but also our NDC. But it's important to, to, to distinguish between NDCs and net zero commitments because NDCs have plans. Some of them are conditional, some of them are not. And by conditional, I mean certain countries receiving funding from other countries or support technology advancements. Also, how uh, com countries industrialize. So there is like a asterisk that has these conditionalities and some are unconditional. But then these do not, uh, the net zero targets are not translated into NDCs. So they're, they're different. Um, NDCs, because you're committing to an international process, you're more conservative with your numbers. You're obviously more conservative with your commitments. That doesn't mean that, that countries are not committed to their net zero targets. It just means that they're still figuring out how to get there and they can't really commit under the UNFCCC process to a net zero. Yeah. So let's, let's, let's turn to Saudi Arabia um, and what this means for Saudi Arabia, it's it's Saudi Green Initiative, it's Middle East Green Initiative, it's planned because so much of the conversation uh, is that these these oil producing states, the Gulf states in particular, you know, wanted have you know starting back in um, in Glasgow, but also even much very much so last year in Egypt, wanted to expand the conversation to the abatement um, and not just fossil fuels. Clearly, that this the 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 UAE consensus reflects some success in doing this. But can you talk a little bit about Saudi Arabia going forward in terms, you know, post uh, COP28? So just to, just to clarify a few terminologies here, it's um, so what happened in Glasgow was the phase out or phase down of, of uh, coal and phase down 
inefficient subsidies on fossil fuels. That was the only, that was the first time fossil fuels were mentioned explicitly in a, in a text, and it only referred to the subsidies on fossil fuel, and then explicitly singled out coal. Um, this conversation was reopened in, in Sharm el-Sheikh last year, COP27, but it didn't really advance much. This year is where really the conversation advanced on fossil fuel and into integrating the, the term fossil fuel when it came to phasing down or phasing out, which ultimately phasing resulted away moving away from fossil fuels, which transition trans uh, now, yeah, the final text says transitioning um, away from fossil fuels uh, in our energy systems. But I'll pass, I'll let you talk about Saudi's perspective and then I'll, I'll add on to that. Yeah, I think from, from Saudi's perspective, um, I mean, to the point that Nora was making on NDCs prior, maybe there are some countries that are putting in their net zero goals and commitments, very few, but there are some that are putting it within the NDCs. Uh, but the way that Saudi Arabia chose to do it was to put on the NDCs whatever they were sure that they were, mm -hmm. they'll were they be able to commit and commit on uh, in parallel outside of the NDCs to the net zero goal and target by 2060. Um, if we're drawing different parallels, I mean, the easiest to say within the global stock take is the goal and target of tripling renewables and doubling of energy efficiency. Uh, what was the last uh, number, Noura, on uh, renewables? Uh, is it you no, tripling? No, what, what, by 2024, it was... Uh, Sadir, I think we'll have about 20-something gigawatts in uh, under development. Under development. So, I mean... Arguably, that, that was the easiest thing for Saudi Arabia to sign off on because our starting point is so far and so low that we will be able to achieve a, a exponential growth in our renewables, uh, as well as uh, some of the additional areas that we could be capturing on energy efficiency. So that's definitely in step with how we choose to approach it. Transitioning away, uh, as I've sort of alluded to in the beginning, uh, is something that's already happening organically around the world. Um, Saudi has established uh, um, two parallel programs, sister programs, I would say arguably um, in connection to the Ministry of Energy, but also with a lot of different counterparts in Kingdom, which are the Circular Carbon Economy National Program, as well as the Oil Sustainability Program. And the intention between the two is to ensure, um, I guess, now with the signal that we're getting from the UAE consensus is as you're increasing demand for your product, you have to start thinking about the associated emissions and how do you ensure that your product is very much fit uh, for for carbon management purposes, right? Uh, as the space starts to narrow down for what kind of uh, barrels of oil are viable in this global market, as we're trying to meet our intended goals and targets, how do you ensure that the Saudi uh, input into that process is becoming more fit for purpose? In addition to thinking of uh, all of the unlocking of technologies that that uh, have just received a very clear signal and endorsement from the exercise of the global stock take, be it in the development of clean hydrogen, Saudi Arabia's very much chosen lens uh, uh, when it comes to the colors of, of hydrogen, agnostic, uh, green, blue, yellow, pink, purple, all, all of them are fine under, under our uh, umbrella, as long as we're looking at uh, the carbon content uh, in quite a serious uh, way. And clean meaning, you know, to take it even one step beyond the low carbon uh, uh, hydrogen umbrella. Uh, equally, a very clear signal towards renewable, um, you know, in, in addition and in parallel to what we're trying to achieve from a 50-50 
goal and target for uh, electricity generation from renewables and natural gas and natural gas. Now, uh, the mandate has been given and the signal has been given since last year that no new power plants will be built without carbon capture and sequestration. We saw the commitments for the nine, is it nine million tons? Uh, CCUS yeah. hub uh, that's already oversubscribed in Jbail, uh, you know, where you're creating whole industries in Saudi Arabia. And by the way, the 44 million tons by 2030, intended by 2030, is the biggest ever globally. Mm -hmm. I mean, in parallel, the the type of role that we're trying to take under Eon Collective is to try and understand, and this will definitely, you know, the UAE consensus will send us into another round of reviews of that type of process, but to understand what's the innate uh, value in early action and what could be captured from these types of movements if you're seeing it as a smooth transition as opposed to a need to meet certain requirements somewhere down the line. I think the opportunity there for Saudi Arabia is quite massive, uh, be it from the renewable side, our ability to go into nuclear quite seriously. And this is something that we've seen over the last few weeks, a big ratchet up equally in COP, uh, an emphasis on renewables and nuclear uh, as, as sources of energy, in addition to this massive emphasis on uh, CCUS. Uh, um, you know, I, I'm not sure if you're going to be around here in, in, in January, but there's also uh, this future min minerals forum that's happening in Saudi on a yearly basis. So Saudi is slowly maturing to become the Saudi Arabia, not for oil, but the Saudi Arabia for energy as a whole ecosystem. Uh, and with it, the opportunity to create these uh, positive spillovers into industry, um, uh, the type of innovation that we want to create and harness uh, within our boundaries, uh, the types of opportunities that could be captured within carbon markets, um, the GHG, for example, um, uh, crediting scheme that was announced during MENA Climate Week from the Ministry of Energy that would allow us to create tradable carbon credits from projects that would be deployed and developed in country, um, the voluntary the regional voluntary carbon uh, crediting uh, market that uh, is is arguably quite successful to date and is starting to attract more and more people into it. You know, the more that these conversations are focused around uh, the integrity and the real inherent value for these carbon offsets, um, you know, connecting it back to what type of inherent value you could be creating in country that's measurable, that's verifiable, that's quantifiable, becomes a really interesting uh, space for conversation. And and I guess in, in parallel, what I would also be focusing on um, is the type of capacities that need to be developed and deployed in country, the type of jobs that these types of signals are creating uh, for the industry, not solely globally or at large, but equally within the kingdom of what are these next areas of focus that we need to be uh, energizing, <laughs> sorry for the pun, uh, throughout the <laughs> uh, uh, in country. I don't know. Yeah. And, and uh, Eon Collective, I mean, because you were very closely involved in the MENA Climate Week in terms of the the um, paper that came out afterwards, you know, everything that went in and then everything that came out. And you're sort of at the heart of all this. And it is a fascinating time for Saudi Arabia and these choices, you know, carbon capture is not yet a proven technology at scale, you know, you know, you, you, you know, it, it, let's say, let's, there's there's questions. In other words, there's there's been failures to do it at scale. Saudi Arabia is moving forward. Hydrogen yet, you know, green hydrogen may or may not be economic yet. Um, 
so it's just fascinating the bets that are being being placed globally, not just in Saudi Arabia. And uh, and you know, I think so much of what COP twenty eight in terms of technologies is emphasizing are directions that Saudi Arabia wants to go anyway. I just did want to comment on something that you mentioned earlier on on the uh, the scale of carbon capture technologies, and it's not proven at scale. And I do take an issue with that because the language matters, the way that these conversations and these topics are being communicated to the general public and the masses uh, makes a difference. And I think the, the issue with carbon capture, just like other technologies that have not been developed at scale or not scaled, is that it takes time for the financing to be put in place for you to, to figure out the business models for the policy to come around to support these technologies to scale. To say that the technology is not proven is misguided because the technology is proven. We've been doing it since the 70s, right? Without leakages, properly done, there's standards for, 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 for carbon management and, and injecting them into aquifers and other spaces or also mineralization, which is a lot better as well, like they're doing in, in, in uh, in Iceland. So I think the challenge here is really the financing and the policy space that it's actually conducive for that. And I think with carbon markets opening up and, and being developed with uh, carbon pricing coming along globally, I think this will be um, this hopefully will uh, improve. But it's also important to notice that there's no one size fits all. There's no silver bullet that will save the problem, will save um, or, or solve the problem. Carbon capture is necessary, but it's not the ultimate solution. And this is where the conference conversation is usually fraught. You know, I'm pointing to oil and gas producers saying that they're trying to promote this technology because they want to maintain their their uh, their product. And ultimately, it's a decision of governments. When governments make the right decision, put the right policies in place, that is, and the regulations and the regulatory um, requirements in order to ensure the integrity of all of that activities, that is really what's going to get us uh, to on the right path. And I think we are getting there. We we are going there, and things are happening. Um, but we do need all of all of the above. We need hydrogen. We need carbon capture. We need as many renewable uh, renewable energy deployments as possible in all shapes and forms. Energy efficiency is a low ha- uh, hanging fruit. And maybe to mention one thing that was announced at the um, at COP was also something that Saudi Arabia and uh, the UAE announced was the global uh, the oil and gas decarbonization pledge, which For brought together sorry For no no in general decarbonizing and getting the industry to reach net zero. Methane was a big component, mm-hmm. so managing methane, which is a low hanging fruit, Saudi Arabia is known for its high standards when it comes to best practices in managing methane. Emissions usually only used for routine flaring, which is necessary for safety reasons. But you get a lot of flaring globally, especially with, you know, let's not name names, but all over the world, um, methane is being uh, flared uh, and leaked, and that poses a huge damage. You have methane is 80% more potent than CO2, and just managing methane alone can save us a lot of time as we figure out the more complex challenges of CO2 and managing CO2 in order to solve for the climate challenge. You did mention MENA Climate Week, and I just want to tell you the way that we chose to approach it at E.ON. Uh, You cannot give recommendations or send directions on what you don't know. And as an initial step, all of our actions have to be science-based and and put the science first uh, in terms of the approach. So what we chose to do with uh, our collaborators going into uh, the previous year, um, Kaust, uh, and I, I, I definitely have clear respect and recognition for Professor Matt McCabe and Capsark as well that went into it with uh, Dr. Mohammed Hijazi. We said that we need to have a baseline uh, that allowed us to understand what's at risk, 
Uh, and how do we look at this issue, not in silos, but in a holistic manner? And that resulted in a paper that you alluded to, which was the report titled Climate Futures, Impacts of a Three-Degree World on Saudi Arabia. And to me, I'm not biased to the chapter that I, I co-authored, but there's a very sobering page. Uh, we chose the color black as a backdrop of that page that showed you a graph of where we need to go, right? If you saw the gap between what we have in terms of commitments in our NDCs and between where we need to be to ensure that we're heading in a direction that allowed us to reach our net zero goals and targets by 2060, it was around, I think, uh, 44, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Tons, you can you can correct me and feel free to put that graph uh, up there as I'm having this conversation yeah, to so people. It's, it's, it's but, uh, but two, it, two thirds of our renewable energy and energy efficiency commitments would get us around two thirds of the way to meet our NDCs. Yeah, everything else um, would come from probably nature-based solutions and other efforts. But it's essentially uh, that we need a lot. Still, yeah. less than a third of what we need to abate or avoid to reach our net zero target. So there's yeah. still a lot of things. I, I remember that there was also, and this is very real for the region, there was also a very striking page about the, the impact of global climate change on Saudi Arabia and the Gulf, because it's it's even greater. It's even it's even greater. So the urgency is is, you know, we talk about the oceanists, you know, and, and submerging countries in essence, but you know, the, your region, the Middle East, is gonna be hit very hard if things aren't done even more so than the rest of the world. Uh, absolutely. I think sp specifically from a temperature increase perspective, you know, we, we always have this conversation with some of our colleagues out there. You know, we say that you, you want to keep 1.5 to stay alive. We definitely double down on that 1.5 goal and target because that 1.5 almost translates into a two, two degree goal and target in our region. That already means that we're way above, we're offshooting that global uh, initial really high level threshold goal and target. And why is it an issue in our region? And that's why it requires the, the granularity and the type of science that would be developed on the back end of it is that because we are in the desert climate. And if, uh, you know, you, you nerd out and dig in a little bit deeper into uh, uh, pressure zones in a desert-like climate, you would know that very little shifts in temperature averages would create massive climactic shifts so with it, maybe uncertainty when it comes to some of the precipitation patterns, be it an increase of rainfall in some areas versus decrease. Um, that's why we chose when we did that report to not only look at the impacts from a model's perspective, but to understand its implications on health, its implications on energy and on infrastructure and industry, its implications on terrestrial and marine ecosystems. Um, the Red Sea that we pride ourselves for having in our backyard uh, one of the most beautiful, most pristine, arguably most resilient seas in the world is again, not disconnected from uh, what's happening around the globe. Uh, you know, with a remembrance that our baseline might be quite high, but it's still our baseline and our threshold to which our environments and our ecosystems evolve to withstand. And these slight shifts have massive implications. So uh, yeah, it requires a, uh, a bit more of a nuanced way of looking at the science, understanding it quite deeply, and then understanding how that um, influences the uh, 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 socioeconomic pathways that we choose to take, but at the same time, not look at innovation and take it for granted as 
you know, if you pour a lot, enough money or throw a lot enough money at a problem, thinking that that will solve it in and of itself, it's a much more complex web of um, elements that you need to be controlling for to be able to create the shifts. And this requires enough of a runway to understand what's at stake, what is the science telling us, and how can we harness the power and the ingenuity of all of the society to help solve for these issues, to ensure that at the end of the day, we're being responsible actors in Saudi Arabia. We're not solely there to act on behalf of ourselves, but there on behalf of the rest of the world. And that requires, honestly, a healthy dose of humility and pragmatism uh, being thrown into the equation, but ensuring that every step of it, you're putting the science first, and actual science, not politicized science, but actual science that's uh, agnostic, that's informing you about whether or not you're on the right pathway. I guess we... we unfortunately have to sort of wrap this up soon. I mean, we should just turn this Richard into a big series on, I mean, we could, we could, cause there's just so many, so much I want to ask you guys, but I think a good way to conclude this is, you know, we have, this is the hottest year for earth on record. You guys said that this cop sort of created a solid rule book. It was a natural evolution. Um, and it's becoming what cops need to be in years to come. And I think a skeptic of the process would say, this is taking too long. You know, greenhouse gas emissions are still rising. We're still planning, you know, fossil fuel expansion. So we, you know, we know that with cooperation, we can do this. But I want to ask you guys, do you think we will? I think we have to, and I think we will. I think the less, um, the less, we talk, the more we act, the better it is for everyone. And I think Saudi Arabia is acting and taking the necessary steps. The, the movement that's happening around the official stream under the UNFCCC is really what's take moving action, right? I think the UNFCCC and the process has been conducive and has done a lot over the years and is still doing a lot and is still necessary to accelerate action and ensuring strong governance from a global level and, and um and a unilateral kind of approach uh, or, or a unified approach. However, there's a lot of bilaterals and multilateral deals that are happening on the side that are actually moving things forward. And I think these are things that are going to move the discussion forward and are going to trickle down and have a positive spillover on the negotiations themselves. Because a lot of the... the, the, the challenges we're negotiating out yeah no not that but i think like not not the challenge but a lot of the the apprehension surrounding the 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 negotiations is because a lot of these things are not are not tried have not been proven they're not at scale all of the above right but these bilateral conversations and agreements that are happening on the sidelines by civil society by global business by the financial institution they're figuring out things on the ground and their success will trickle down onto the negotiations and allow the negotiation process to even uh, propel further because they're seeing what's happening on the ground. Um, and I think that was also a big uh, space where the kingdom was able to play a proactive role in the negotiations because it has been doing things on the ground and actually moving forward its climate agenda and its environmental agenda as part of a comprehensive development agenda. So I think it's important to highlight that and the benefit that this informal track brings to the table. But I think the bigger message, especially in climate discussions that we see, puts you in one of two camps, either that of punditry and trying to imagine and envision what that pathway will look like, 
and then start staring at pieces of paper and say, good enough, not good enough, uh, bad, uh, you know, black, white. It just doesn't work that way. Or you choose to do what we're hopefully doing, which is roll up our sleeves, have a sobering look at the science, keep our North Star, uh, you know, at bay and, and ensure that we're heading in that direction of 1.5. And to say, this is what we choose to do. And this is where we choose to take our, ourselves over the next 10 years. To me and to Noura, I'm, both of us, it's not acceptable to think of these outcomes of any of these cops as a win for Saudi Arabia and stare at the faces of uh, our partners uh, that, that will be on the losing end of it and say, well, we tried. Uh, okay. Sorry. Um, I wish we could have done more. Um, it, it will definitely be our mission over the next few years to ensure that every single country has a clear seat at the table and it has a clear mm -hmm. and pragmatic way of engaging with the issues, less of dreaming up dreams on a piece of paper and more of things that could be deployed and are actionable. And you can think of it as our life's mission of ensuring that all of this progress is not only felt in Saudi Arabia, it's actually more in step of the ethos of Saudi Arabia, that no growth, no benefit comes to us without pulling our brethren along with us to a safer space of operation. That that tends to be hopefully what our mission will be next few years. Princess Michelle bin Saud Al Shahlan and Princess Nora bin Turkey Al Saud with Eon Strategy. Guys, thank you so much. Edifying for both of us and for all of our listeners and viewers to learn about COP28, COP29, the way forward, um, and your experiences there in the UAE. So thank you both very much. Thank you, Lucien. Thank you. Thank you. Good to see you both. Yeah, and thank you for all the great work you're doing. That was our really terrific conversation with Princess Michelle bin Saud Al Shahlan and Princess Nora bin Turki Al Saud, co-founders of Eon Strategy and Eon Collective. Um, just a privilege to speak with both of them, Richard. Um, and we got them in the same uh, view. They were sitting next to each other. Some of our YouTube viewers probably saw that at certain times. So just brilliant, brilliant people, wonderful, and a terrific opportunity to speak with them. That was a new format. And it sort of just happened. And it, it, it was great to have their dynamic and both of them contributing and, and lending their insights because that was, a it, it, you know, it was fun because we got to talk about their experience of being there with 85,000 other people, you know, on a huge campus uh, and then getting work done and then talking about what came out of it. Really excellent. Mm -hmm. Those two are those two are really impressive. It's that conversation, conversations like the first one we had with Princess Michelle um, that enabled the 966 to have a very strong year this year in 2023 for which we are very appreciative of our listeners and viewers um more than doubling in every metric uh about growth of the podcast so i mean some areas way more than that but um you know we appreciate these conversations with people because they bring in new listenerships but also make us better at our jobs because we're just <laughs> learning as well. So anyway, thanks so much to them. It was really a privilege. Let's now get to Yella. Saudi in Saudi a minute. minute. Yella. Yella. Yeah. <laughs> Number one. <laughs> uh, we're Saudi. missing some eggnog, Richard. We should get some eggnog in the mix here. <laughs> Imagine um, the Yella at that point. <laughs> yeah, I know. And it could just be spectacularly good. Um, the Saudi foreign ministry officially launched KSA Visa, a new unified national platform for visa applications at the Digital Government Forum in Riyadh on Tuesday. 
The system, which connects with more than 30 ministries, authorities, and private sector organizations, has been designed to streamline the process of applying for visas for Hajj, Umrah, tourism, business-related visits, and employment, the Saudi press agency reported. The platform uses artificial intelligence and other emerging technologies to help ensure accurate verification of date and overall efficiency, officials said. Visit ksavisa.sa to use the new system. Yes, visit KSA with this new visa system. I mean, this is cool. I, mean, I played around with the site a good bit. Very professional looking. Yeah. Part of the 966 frequently de- declared truths about Saudi Arabia. I, mean, I should put together a little like bill of declared truths, Richard. But one is that the visa scheme in Saudi Arabia has dramatically improved. What is new here, and this was announced recently, but this new business visa uh, business visit visa, excuse me, scheme allows you to not have an invitation letter. I know that was announced a little bit while a little bit back, but um, yeah, that's cool. That that was a challenge. There were sometimes uh, things that were hard, uh, you know, invitation letters that were hard to get for some if they're looking to explore general opportunities. Uh, they took time. Uh, they took a lot of effort from the hosting business writing these letters up, added mm-hmm. bureaucracy. But anyway, to have all of this in one location for a visitor of any type, progress. You know, we have exactly we've commented ongoing as that their access to Saudi Arabia has evolved and become much, more, much easier. This makes sense, you know, and, and again, we've talked about Saudi Arabia constantly sort of refining, getting a little better, understanding what's needed, trying to be responsive. This is a great one place to go in. And, and I went in and messed with it like you did. And, and it, it it was it's very simple and it works. And it does seem to be working. Uh, so related to this, Saudi Arabia's Ministry of Tourism announced that the total number of tourists reached 53.6 million in the first half of 2023. Key among this is that incoming tourists reached 14.6 million. Local tourists were the remaining 39 million. Obviously, they, you know, but this is, this is the first half of 2023. So, you know, if you double that, you know, just extrapolate, and you're looking at close to 30 million incoming tourists in 2023. I mean, Saudi Arabia is making real progress. These people weren't even thinking about coming to Saudi Arabia three years ago. Great, great point. You also have the Club World Cup going on. And I mean, like, you know, it'd be interesting to see the rest of this, these numbers. But yeah, that would mean basically 26 million foreigners are visiting Saudi Arabia in 2023. That's And they adjusted their numbers accordingly, but they're beating their originally set tourism goals. And then you also have Expo 2030 coming up and the Asian Winter Games in 2029. You have um, the World Cup in 2034, all but a done deal. So cool. I mean, yeah, this is, yeah, this is really hard to, hard to keep track of all the things coming up. Yeah. And we can't take any more. It wasn't a week off, but it was just sort of a logistical challenge to get the episodes going. And it was a few weeks ago, but we can't take any more time off with Saudi. There's no regular season. It's all playoffs, as we discussed. Yellow number two, Tamara, a buy now play, excuse me, a buy now pay later platform for consumers in Saudi Arabia and the wider DCC region raised $340 million in a financing round that values the fintech at $1 billion. Saudi asset manager and financial institution SNB Capital and Sanabal Investments, a wholly owned company by the PIF, led the Series C round. Other backers include Sharuk Partners, Pinnacle Capital, Impulse, and others joining existing investors such as Checkout.com. The round, composed of primary capital, 
and a transaction of some secondary assets is among the largest investments in a fintech in the region historically. Nice. Um, so it's saying this is the first fintech. What was the first fintech? Not fintech, but Unicorn Jahez, which is really a food delivery app. Mm-hmm. 2022 was a unicorn, billion valued a billion dollars. This is um, so this is great, and you know it's and and coincidentally, Tabby, which is a UAE, you know, but Riyadh based BNPL service, uh, sort of just went past. It was already at a billion, but it went past. It was recently valued 1.5 billion because they raised 200 million at that valuation. So um, we love I you know buy now pay later is kind of nice. Um, and a lot of people are taking advantage of it. And also just in order to keep pace, the Saudi central bank just recently announced new rules for regulating buy now, pay later. So it's, so basically they, they've issued a bunch of new rules, you know, regulating licensing and, and minimum standards and procedures and, you know, trying to keep ahead of this, this part of the market. Uh, cause clearly it's moving along quickly. So this is a nice coup for, this is a nice coup for, for, uh, tomorrow. And it's a, it's a great thing for, um, you know, for investors and eventually, you know, these people, they'll exit and make a lot of money and that's, you know, incentive for others to try and do the same. That's how mm-hmm. you build it. Yeah. That's how you build it. You build confidence in the whole quote unquote ecosystem, the most commonly used word over yeah. there because they want to really generate it. It's interesting. We have talked about Sanabel as an investor and its role as an investor in the region and globally over time, Sanabel invests purely for return. They would like to say that the local angle is sort of a cherry on top of what they're doing, uh, but their role is not to stimulate the local VC ecosystem. Its role is to make money until qu- quite recently, actually. Um, and it's been interesting to see a shift because the PIF is a 50% backer of Sanabel. Um, They have been strategically changing a little bit, putting its, you know, it usually puts capital into PE and VC funds around the world and a lot of it into Silicon Valley, but mostly outside Saudi Arabia. Um, and they earlier this year released that huge sort of list of every investment they've made just so that they put the cards on the table, which was uh, something we talked about at the time. I was curious about this investment though, Richard, this is again, a local investment. What other local investments they have made as specifically as the lead investor? They did one actually just this week, Lendo, Series B funding round of 105 uh, million Saudi rials. That would probably be a smaller check for them. Not sure, but they Sanabel led that um, along with Sharuk and AB Ventures. Tamara, we just discussed uh, earlier. That was another, and then another one they led on was Sari. Sari is S A R Y is the B two B marketplace for groceries, wholesale, all of that uh, in Saudi Arabia and Egypt. So one could kind of draw the conclusion that Sanabel if it is investing purely for return, it's starting to see the local market as an attractive investment opportunity. That's your litmus test. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, if you're, if, if you're just simply going on return on investment, a lot of times in the past, you know, people bypass Saudi Arabia because they could get better returns elsewhere in the world. Um, but that's always a wonderful litmus test when it's a novel, you know, organization like that decides, all right, when we, when we survey the world and all our options, this is the best one. That's, that's when you're really making some headway. Agreed. Um, number three, according to the 2022 land transport bulletin issued on Wednesday by the General Authority for Statistics, GA stat, that's a group I'd love to have someone from. They're sort of been, you know, the backbone to so much of the info. There has been a notable, notable 6.8% decrease in serious traffic accidents compared to 2021. GA stat 
also highlighted, and this is what I love, a substantial increase in public bus transportation usage with the number of passengers within and between cities reaching over 43.5 million in 2022. This marks a striking, striking 233.9% rise from the previous year. Why is there such a significant growth in bus usage? That is interesting. Um, public bus transportation, that's a substantial growth. So well, they, that's, they, this is interesting, yeah. They, they've started in, in introducing and implementing a whole, a whole, whole new bus system. I mean, it, it's supposed to, it, you know, it's coming in along with the Metro at the same time, but they've started running it. And so it's available now uh, to a greater degree. And it sound, it looks like people are adopting it, which is huge because, you know, Riyadh's a mess in terms of traffic. Oh my gosh. It's just a mess. And if, really if, you know, they need to have another 10 years of 233.9% rise annually in order to, to, you know, somehow relieve the traffic. So this is, this is great. And there's always a question about, you know, what will the uptake be? You know, will people want to take the bus or the Metro even? And so this is encouraging. Mm -hmm. And yet later on in this, this is kind of the second, you know, like jam packed of nuggets release basically from the government that gives you a lot to look at different storylines to kind of pursue, but the total amount of paved road, the total length of paved yeah. road in the kingdom expanded only 1.6%. That seems really low. I don't know. I mean, that, that's from, from 2021 too. So in the year 2022, it only um, grew 1.6%. Doesn't that seem low? I don't know. Well, I think that's good. I mean, as we know, the more roads you build, the more congested they become. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if, if they're, if they're opting for public transport over building new, you know, putting down a lot more asphalt, it's probably good in the long run. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, if you hear booms, it is pure. So I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm in a different location, but the, you can hear, I can hear wildlife and really loud shotgun shots. It's hunting oh, season. Really? So, uh, People yeah, if you hear it, just, I'm sorry, everybody, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, it startles even me. Um, so if you dive underneath the desk, we know why. <laughs> It's because it's this. I'm on the water here, so the sounds really travel from a far distance. But it reminds you like how loud guns are. They're so loud. They are. Do, do <laughs> um, you have anything bright orange you can put on? I on me no, um, unfortunately. <laughs> so I may look like a deer out there or yeah, something exactly. else. <laughs> um, and we we're gonna come back to wildlife actually later in this program, Richard. We like to tie oh, these things together. So this is interesting. Anyway, yellow number four. Saudi director Ali Kalthami's thriller, Night Courier, uh, known in the Arabic as Mandub, has posted a record-breaking opening at home, generating uh, 114,000, excuse me, admissions for a $1.58 million, uh, $1 million gross to beat Warner Brothers uh, and their blockbuster Wonka. Front Row Arabia, the joint distribution label of Front Row Filmed Entertainment and local exhibitor Movie Cinemas, launched the title theatrically in all of Saudi Arabia's 63 cinema theaters on 121 screens on December 14th. Very cool. And it's in keeping. A lot of the leading titles um, are Arab or Saudi, but this is obviously Saudi, but uh, not always Saudi, but Arab. And uh, I don't know if I mentioned, I didn't mention when I was there, I was there for a while and I had them one night that, I just had to get out of the place and I hadn't had anything planned. I went over to see a movie, went over to Riyadh park and you've been in some of the malls in Riyadh. My guess is mm -hmm. they're insanely amazing. 
Riyadh Park is gorgeous. Um, these were Vox cinemas. Uh, you know, walked over, walked around the mall, went to see the movie, walked out. It was a great experience. It was easy, simple, straightforward. And again, the setting was insanely, you know, lush and plush. It was an, it's a nice mall and there's a number of really nice malls. I mean, this, we're talking, I'm, I'm not a mall person and I know you're not either. And so I, it's not like I'm the, you know, I'm the, the you know, the, the last word on malls, but it's as nice as anything I've seen in the States for sure. I think the 966 has one authority on malls. It's going to be you. It's, it's definitely not me, but I, you're exactly right. The malls there, uh, especially in Riyadh, there are some really cool new malls. It's very, I, I don't like malls and they're kind of fallen off as a thing in the U.S., at least have been for a while. But in Saudi Arabia, they're they're huge. And uh, I'm also not into movies. What movie did you see when you were there? Uh, I needed a brain dead movie. So I saw the Marvels. The Marvels. Okay, cool. Which was actually kind of interesting. It was kind of, a, you know, Barbie was a commentary on social social commentary and Marvels was kind of one too in terms of the you know, you know Marvel comic universe universe. Mm -hmm. So anyway, it was that's another that's an, maybe for another episode. But it was it was fun. It was a nice experience. And then the movie was it was diverting and passably interesting. So it was a win win. <laughs> I have never seen a Marvel movie, and I've never seen the whatever the other one is, and it drives my brother crazy. And now I've got the streak going. I can't just jump in. So That's I've asked true. him to basically say, hey, look, if you want to watch, there's like how many, maybe like 30 of them now or whatever. Yeah. You need to put them into chronological order. So I'm not like weaving my way around, you know, like not just in the way that they were released, but maybe in the timeline that they discuss. Uh, maybe that maybe I'll get that for Christmas. <laughs> Who knows? Well, you know, that's an interesting I mean, uh, that, you know, you're you're. Um you know, you're postponing gratification uh, unless you're just not interested in it, you know, gives you that opportunity to basically, you know, watch it from beginning to end. Yeah. If you, if you want, some of um, them are, some of them are really good. Some of them, you know, plenty of them are just movies. Yeah. But they are, you know, I'm definitely in the minority as they have grossed like trillions of dollars, oh, not yeah. actually, but oh, you know, yeah. that everyone yeah. loves yeah. them. So <laughs> you, you, yeah, you, uh, you, you were, you were in a very small cohort, group. Mm -hmm. including my brother, my boss and colleague. I mean, everyone <laughs> loved them, all Saudis. So yeah, I mean, maybe one day I'll start knocking them off on flights, but flights are the best time to get some peace and quiet. Maybe not on my next flight, Richard, but uh, certainly on, on most of the time it's, it's nice to work. So yeah, I don't know. Anyway, we're, I'm sorry for everybody that had to listen to that. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, I do want to see the reboot of Wonka though. So I don't know, you know, there you go. Netflix or whatever. Yeah. Maybe you can see it in, in Saudi. How good is Gene Wilder's version of that though? I mean, Gene Wilder, <laughs> you know, <laughs> We should just hang it up right now, by the way, because it's just dragging. Yeah, I we, swear we don't have eggnog going on today. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, think uh, I think it's you. Is it, Didn't is I, it? Oh, did you? Yeah, yeah. Saudi for number four. No, no, no. This is not. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So is this number five? This is number five. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Saudi uh, private yeah. equity firm Judwa Investment Company is planning to raise as much as 2 billion rials, $530 million for a new fund to boost deal-making in fast-growing oil exporting countries in the Middle East. The firm is raising its first blind pool fund with a view to taking significant minority stakes or larger in as many as 12 companies over the next three years, Judwa said in a statement to Bloomberg. It will target investments in Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Qatar, Kuwait, Bahrain, and Oman, an economic bloc known as the Gulf Cooperation Council, or GCC. 
Yeah, cool story. Had the pleasure of dining with their CEO in Riyadh last month. Brilliant guy. Judd was an interesting story in general. Back to Brad Borland. I mean, and somebody you know, Richard, as well. I mean, this is just an interesting move for them. Um, and it shows a maturing PE, local-based, purely local-based PE situation developing in Saudi Arabia. It's the theme we discussed earlier in, in, um, in the show. So pretty cool. We love Jedwa and we love their reports. You know, they have $20 billion under, you know, total client assets. They're a big player. They're widely considered to be very sharp. And so this is just affirmation of what we talk about. I mean, people are, are deploying capital to the region because they think they can make money, which is the bottom line and which has got to be very encouraging mm -hmm. to, you know, all the architects of Vision 2030. Absolutely. Congrats to them. I'm sure they will raise it very quickly. Um, so that's pretty cool. Yellow number six, Saudi Arabia's 100 mile long and 1500 foot high linear mega city set to be built in the desert will be, quote, a death trap, end quote, for millions of migrating birds, experts have warned. The kingdom says the line, which will cost $1 trillion to build, give or take, will be an unprecedented living experience that preserves, quote, surrounding nature. However, conservationists have sounded the alarm over the vast project, saying it will be a deadly barrier for birds migrating between Europe and Africa each year. Uh, yes. <laughs> Great one to end on today. You know, by the way. Who put this one in there? I, I'm 100% taking claim for this. <laughs> So this, I don't, I don't think anybody really wants a death trap. So, no, uh, this is serious business. But I think it's good to be put in here because it's probably true in the sense that there will have to be accommodations and adjustments. Well, no, it's certainly true. Without a doubt, true. There's going to be all sorts of things that need to be figured out. You're building something this big, you know, apart from the construction of it, which will will have its own problems and surprises and reversals. And we've talked about it. You know, we don't see it ever being 100 miles long, um, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, but, you know, at some point they may find that there it is it is a problem with migrating birds. And I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I think you can probably uh, remediate that in certain ways, you know, to to. Uh, redirect the birds or alert the birds. Um, but yeah, this is one of those things. You know, this is a Daily Mail. Every time I just, this is a Daily Mail article and, and Daily Mails are fun mostly because they have great pictures typically, but you know, sometimes they can be pretty light. Picture um, books for adults that read yeah. the news is basically <laughs> what it is. And you know, of course they're going for, they're going for clicks. So I'm not saying that doesn't, you know, there's, there's, you know, and, Apparently, nightingales, weed eaters, larks, sand grouse, and turtle doves are all species of bird that use the migratory route, which could be affected. So this is highly speculative, but it certainly could be the case. Um, and my guess is if it becomes a real problem, that there will be steps to to address it. But, you know, this is this is a big flyer, a big swing we've talked about in the past. There's going to be some adjustments required. Mm -hmm. And we don't want it to be a death trap. No, we don't want it to be a death trap. I mean, my issue with this story is not its inclusion for publication in the Daily Mail, but what they don't include as context around this. I mean, it's stories like this, and then it's moving on to guess what this latest celebrity's 
boyfriend was wearing to dinner in LA. Yeah, it's exactly. like, okay. And I love the Daily Mail for that when you don't want to think too hard. <laughs> I do think that this is um, very interesting because, you know, look, if this is a serious situ- problem or challenge, then it's good that people are saying, hey, account for this. I Googled what to do if, uh, you know, how, how, how to prevent birds from flying into a glass or mirrored building. And there are like listicles about it. So it's a problem that other have had. This isn't going to be the first mirrored building, but it will be, you know, if it is built to scale and, and to size and, you know, maybe it will, I don't know. But, um, and, and again, I'm not an architect or an ornithologist to look that up. Um, <laughs> but I think, um, you know, Saudi Arabia is, is going for sustainability with this. They're going for eco-friendly they will take this into account somehow and you know they will take this criticism architects will and say okay we got to make sure that this isn't happening and they move on this isn't like a huge deal but you know the line is gonna adjust like vision 2030 is adjusting and morphing over time and yeah i mean you don't want this but uh um you yeah, know, yeah yeah I, I think we can close with two key things in this episode one is of course undoubtedly Bartholomew Diaz. Yes. And the other is ornithology. And, you know, these are the things one gets to, these are the nuggets one discovers on the 966. Indeed. I feel like this would be a highly searchable uh, episode if it had a transcript because there are so many different. Gene Wilder was mentioned, um, <laughs> just scanning through. Yeah. Uh, checkout.com got a little hat tip. Anyway, this, this is what we do with the 966. It's a broad, offering smorgasbord if you will um and it's been a great year richard uh 52 episodes this year i believe did we do 52 i think we did 52 because we had a couple two firsts and we only took like one week off i have to go to the tapes on that but I'm i don't sure feel we do like one each week. do you feel like you stopped working i don't feel like i stopped working no but no. uh it's very nice that all of you are along this journey with us and we do appreciate it very much because we couldn't do it without you and you know it's just nice to be uh, you know, contacted about the work we're doing here. And anyway, so it's, it's cool that you guys are here. So thank you all. I, I feel like I've stumbled, we've stumbled into a virtuous circle in the sense that we like doing this. We get better, I think, as human beings in terms of our minds and our understanding doing this. And um, we're finding an audience that appreciates it and, you know, is happy to to consume it. And it's, it's it's a really nice thing that you know. Again, we had no plans when we started this, but 52, 52 in a year is awesome. I thought they were all good. I know I learned a lot, and it's just I can't say how grateful I am that people are tuning in at inc- ever increasing numbers. Mm-hmm. Yep, couldn't agree more. Merry Christmas, sir. Merry Christmas, to everybody out there, and happy holidays. And we will be back shortly. Shortly. <laughs>